You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Well, we're in the book of Romans, and uh, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've already been blessed uh, greatly just through uh, the first 16 verses or 17 verses, and um, uh, as we've looked at the first 17 verses, there's something that you see over and over again. It's about the gospel, right? Um, We looked at in the first seven verses our identity as a result of the gospel. In verses 8 through 15, we looked at our unity as a result of the gospel. And last week, we looked at the, the, the power of the gospel in verses 16 and 17. And as we get into the next four or five weeks here, we're going to be looking at now the necessity of the gospel. Um, really, if we're to understand the good news, we need to first understand the bad news, right? We touched on this this last week, and um, I, I was looking at, you know, the top 50 themes that are used at church, 50, top 50 themes for sermons you know, you're like, how many different themes can there be? But in the top 50, the theme that we're going to be talking about today was not in the top 50, right? The, the number one theme was the love of God, which is, which is great. Uh, the whole lot of the Word of God talks about the love of God, and there's an emphasis on the love of God in the Scripture. But this topic that we're going to be talking about today, there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about. Um, especially in a country like ours. And that topic is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. I was listening to a sermon by MacArthur talking about the wrath of God. And uh, he said, when's the last time you heard a song about the wrath of God? Right? And, and the congregation laughed, just like, you know, we, you know we're tempted to. And, but he said, if you look back at the 19th century and the, and the hymns that they were singing back then, there was a lot of songs about the wrath of God. We don't like to talk about it today. Our God is not a God of wrath. A lot of people like to think that. They like to think that that, that was the Old Testament God, right? We, we, there's lots of examples we could think about. The flood, right? God sees that there's evil all over the earth, and he brings a flood, and only eight people are saved, or you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, a, a city who was in rebellion against God, and only three people were saved as God brought down fire from heaven. Uh, smaller examples, but nonetheless deadly. You think about Uzzah. Uzzah, they were going to take the ark from one place to another. The, the, the ark is about to fall. He reaches out and touches it, and what happens? He dies. Nadab and Abihu, they give offerings to God with strange fire. The result, they die. Over and over again, you see that there is the wrath of God against sin throughout the Old Testament. But that was the Old Testament. We know that God now is a God of love. Remember, Jesus came and, 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 and you know, we've kind of got this revisionist history going on about what Jesus talked about a whole lot about. Uh, only, you know, one of the most popular topics that Jesus talked about? Hell, 
right? He talked a whole lot about that in the Gospels, but people kind of forget that. And now we kind of have this mamby-pamby kind of version of God who, he's just a God of love. He's very accepting. He's, he's evolved over the years. And, and, and just like we have gotten so much better, God has gotten so much better, and he's a God of love. The problem with that is, is that's not in Scripture. And, and as we're going to look at this morning, there is a wrath that is coming against sin. The question is, who is the wrath against, and why is the wrath of God necessary? And we're going to look at that as we look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 this morning. Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we, we thank you um, that we have this time together this morning. Lord, on this Thanksgiving weekend, there really is so many reasons for us to give thanks. God, I pray that you would find us to be a thankful people, that we would not be those who would grumble and complain. God, we need to hear from you today. Lord, the voices of this world, ourselves, uh, cry out loudly day after day. And God, we if not left, if left to ourselves, Lord, we would go astray from you. And so, God, we, we pray that, Lord, as we look at your word today, that we would be quick to submit to what your word says. That, Lord, we would love your word and its authority. That, Lord, we would take heed to the warnings of your scripture. And that, Lord, we would live and act accordingly. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you've given to each one here this morning who has trusted in you for salvation. And so, Lord, would you guide us by your Spirit? Would you help us to understand the things that you have for us? It's your name we pray. Amen. So Romans 1, 18 to 23, we're going to read that together, and then we're going to break it down. Romans 1, 18 to 23, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Why is God's wrath necessary? Well, we see... In chapter 1 here, God's wrath is necessary because of human rebellion. And as we consider the character of God, sin demands God's wrath. Sin demands God's wrath. We see this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. For, 
looking at this verse, we're mindful of the fact that this points us back to verse 17. Now, as I thought about my Christian experience, it struck me that, that although I've heard lots of sermons on 16 and 17, and then on 18 to 23, I don't know that I've ever heard them back to back. And it's almost been like they were separate topics. There's the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, which is the power of God to save. That's a really good thing. And then there's a separate topic called the wrath of God, and that's, that's what God is bringing. I've never, I guess, considered the fact that they are actually interconnected. So the question is, then, how are they interconnected? Uh, Schreiner is helpful here. It is important to remember that the righteousness of God consists of both his saving and his judging righteousness. The saving and judging righteousness of God find, sorry, the saving and right, judging righteousness of God find their resolution as chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 illustrates. You can just write that down and look at it for yourself later. The revelation of God's saving righteousness righteousness exposes the full wickedness of human sin and the depth of God's wrath against it. Why is God's saving righteousness needed? Because human sin has resulted in the revelation of God's wrath in his judging righteousness. The argument can be traced as follows. God's saving righteousness is being revealed in the gospel by faith, verse 17, And we really need God's saving righteousness. That's the implied proposition. Why? Because, verse 18, because God's wrath is being revealed against all people who have sinned against his glory. The bad news is needed in order for us to understand the good news. So, what is God's wrath? Many people reject the idea of God's wrath because they think of wrath in human terms. They, they see it as someone who's like flying off the handle and, 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 and just destroying whatever is in their way in this rage. That's not the picture of God's wrath. It's not irrational. It's not flying off the hook. And rather, it's as MacArthur puts it, the settled, determined response of a righteous God against sin. And so there's, there's no... There's no um, last-minute kind of, uh, kind of response to God's wrath. Of course, we know that God is merciful and gracious, but God will judge sin. God does come in anger against sin. Five different ways. MacArthur's study Bible, I thought this was really helpful, uh, put out, uh, just pointed out that there are five different ways we see God's wrath manifested in the Bible. Of course, the one that we talked about last weekend and and maybe the one that we think about mostly is that eschatological wrath. On the last day, when when we stand before God, there will be His wrath against all sin. There will be a final judgment. A lot of people think about that. We're going to see that in Romans 2.5 when we study that later, but this is to be reminded of that. It says in verse... 5 of chapter 2, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so there's 
that kind of wrath, but there are other kinds of wrath. There is the eternal wrath of God. In other words, when, when God judges sin, it's not just for a moment, but the, the price for sinning against the eternal God is eternal wrath, which is hell or the lake of fire. Thirdly, there is the cataclysmic wrath, where God intervenes in a direct way against sin. Of course, again, I brought up some of those examples, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, where, where God brings about wrath through nature. Of course, we can think about the ten plagues as well in Egypt. Then there's consequential wrath. This is the, the principle of sowing and reaping, right? Choose to sin, choose to suffer. There's consequences when we sin against God. There are consequences for that. And then lastly, somewhat uh, similar, there's the wrath of abandonment. The wrath of abandonment. In other words, God just saying, just keep going. Just keep doing what you're doing. I'll give you, sell, give you over to your sin. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 1, where, where God removes his restraint and lets people go to their sins. An example of that is found in Psalm 81, Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. It says, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. In other words, God's just like, do it your own dumb way. You, you, can, you can continue on your way. And as a result of that, the wrath of God is being revealed. And we're going to see that when we choose to turn away from God, we choose to walk in sin. And there's this moral deterioration of a society that has done that. There's a, there's a result of God's judgment against mankind. So God will respond to sin. It's in his character. He has to, right? God is holy. There is no sin in him. He is perfectly righteous. Everything he does is perfect and holy. And so when he witnesses wrongdoing, when he sees sins in the, sin in the world, he needs to react as a holy God. He righteously gets anger, angry over sin. Do you ever get angry over sin when you see, ang uh, when you see great sin in the world? Does that move you? The, the, the elders are going through a book called right now called uh, Gentle and Lowly. And one of the chapters that we looked at this last week was, was uh, the fact that, that Jesus had perfect emotions. And as humanity, sometimes we overreact, but a lot of times we also underreact, right? When, when Jesus had compassion, he acted on that compassion. It moved him to action, when you and I see something and we might be compassionate, we're like, well, that's really sad. And we do nothing really about it. So too it is with anger. Our anger ought to move us to action, and it does so for God. But just consider before we think, well, God, you know, how could he be a God of wrath? How is that possible? Well, consider things like slavery. 
Does that move you to anger in any sort of way? What about the fact that there are 3.8 million adults and 1 million children who are, who are victims of forced sexual exploitation in this world? How about the fact that, that forced sexual labor brings in about $99 billion a year in this world? Like, when you see that kind of thing, when you hear about abuse, you should be stirred in your soul. You should be angry about the fact that that is happening. That is a godlike characteristic. The problem with our view of God's wrath is that we view sin too small. But God does not. And so he will judge sin. His anger does come out against sin. Of course, when it comes to you and I, we all have blinders on when it comes to our own sin. We can see it in others, but when it comes to our own sin, we are really good at belittling our own sin, but that's not true for God. We read here, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's just another way of saying that God is perfect in his judgment. He sees it all. Every single person on this earth, he sees every thought, he sees every action, he knows everything about you. And so when he comes with his wrath, he comes so perfectly, and he comes against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Note the word all. He does not come against some unrighteousness, some ungodliness. He comes against all unrighteousness, all ungodliness. To be ungodly is to be unrighteous by virtue of not giving proper respect for, for, for God is to live as if God does not exist. That's what ungodliness is. It's not, it is to refuse to give the worship that we ought to give. And then, of course, unrighteousness is the failure to adhere to moral principles, commands, or laws. And as we're going to see that, that a wrong view of God, a lack of worship for him, results in a immoral life. That's what happens again and again. And so they're similar terms, these two. They're interrelated. So God's wrath will come against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. This is the bad news. As we're going to read in chapter 1, this is all mankind who have turned away from God and desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel. Anytime you share the gospel, you must bring also the bad news. Do we understand that? Sometimes the, the gospel message of today is like, just add Jesus to your life. It'll be really good. You know, he, you'll, you'll be a better parent. You'll be a better spouse. You'll understand right from wrong. It's going to be really good. Just add them to your life. Do you want to do that right now? And some people are like, okay, sure. Can I add them to all these other things? Sure, sure, no problem. Just add them to everything. 
That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that you need to be saved. Saved from what? From the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. In other words, every single person needs to be saved from that because the wrath of God is coming. We do not know the day or the hour, but it is coming, and we must be saved. And so when we give the gospel, we must also give the bad news. Well, what about those people who've never heard the gospel? Are they going to be judged as well? The the illustration that always gets used is like, what if there was a guy who lived on an island by himself? Is that guy going to go to hell too? Like, what, what happens with him? Well, Paul tells us in verses 18 through 23 here as we continue on. Who deserves God's wrath? Sinners deserve God's wrath. What about that guy on the island? Does he have any evidence that there is a God? Yes, he does. We see that God's wrath is going to come against people all mankind for two different reasons. First, we see because of the suppression of truth, suppression of God's truth. At the verse of 18, we see you talking, talking about all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This word for suppress is to prevent someone from doing something by restraining or hindering to prevent, to hinder, to restrain, to keep from, or it's, it's a physical holding down of something, right? A physical holding down of something. Now, I, I, it was one of those illustrations that just kind of locks in your mind, and it's just been there for like the last 14 years. But it, when R.C. Sproul spoke at Shepherd's Conference 14 years ago, he told this illustration about what it means to suppress, and I've never forgot it. He said, just imagine that there's a giant spring here, right? And the picture that this word suppress is giving is that you are pressing down on that spring with all your might, and it's taking everything you can to push it down, right? That's the picture of suppressing the truth. Every single man and woman in this earth is doing this, right? And, and what happens when you try to share the gospel with them? Try to talk to them about God. Right? You're, kind of, you're, trying to, you're trying to move their hand away, right? So that the, the truth starts coming out, and they're just like, stop. Just, I don't want to talk about it. You can talk about the most personal details of their life. Sure, let's talk about that. You start talking about God, and there you get this, this reaction to them. How come? Because they're suppressing the truth. Because they don't want to know the truth, truly. Right? So they live in this self-deception, This also should be a part of your evangelism. Well, I don't believe there's a God. The Bible says you do. Who wins that argument? The Bible is the authority. The Bible is the authority, and the Bible says every single person has suppressed the truth. The truth about what? That there is a God. 
Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Uh, to be known is something that is recognized or, under, or understood. Man is without excuse. God has shown them that he is who he says he is, that there is a God. The whole of creation cries out that there is a God. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Anyone seen God today? Um, yes and no, right? Isn't that what this verse is saying? God is invisible. You and I cannot see him right now in this room, but as we look at creation, we can see him. That's what he's saying here. Listen, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen in creation. All of creation points out that there is an amazing, awesome God. And so we can see him. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the creator. For the last century or so, that fact has been continually been put on or there's a battle over it, right? Continually. Well, I don't know. How did we get here? Well, it, it just happened. There was like a, a bang. There was a... Evol things that just evolved. There was uh, aliens put us here. There was, uh, like, you think about the different theories that have been put out over the last century about how we got here. All of it is what? To do this. Got to suppress the truth. We got to put it down. We got to put it down somehow. But the Bible is clear that God is the creator. It reveals, this creation reveals his eternal power. Like, just consider the awesomeness of the universe and beyond. You, you come to the same, solution, uh, same resolution as Psalm 8, 1, 1 through 4. Psalm 8, 1 through 4. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I mean, you think about the, the, the te technology that we have today and the way that we're able to observe our creation that they didn't have before. We can see smaller than we've ever been able to see. We can see further than we've been able, ever been able to see. And all of it screams out that there is an awesome, awesome God. Just consider the human being. 
Just a few things that I found online about the human being. The human brain has a memory capacity which is the equivalent of more than four terabytes on a hard drive. Your skull is made up of 29 different bones. A single human brain generates more electrical impulses in a day than all the telephones of the world combined. The human heart pumps 128 million liters of blood during the average lifetime. 50,000 cells in your body died and were replaced by new ones while you were reading this sentence. That's pretty amazing. The total length of all the blood vessels in the human body is about 100,000 kilometers. The average four-year-old asks 450 questions a day. (laughs) If you were to allow your hair to grow for a lifetime, it would be 725 kilometers. I'm like, who who came up with that one? Um, Did you know that there are 100 different viruses that which cause colds? The human skin is completely replaced about a thousand times during a person's lifetime. Do you know you have 2,000 taste buds? Do you know that information zooms along the nerves at about 400 kilometers per hour? Do you know that your nose can recognize a trillion different scents? Do you know that when you sneeze, which is why we have masks, that, that the air going out your nose, it goes about 100 miles an hour? Like just, like, just think about the human body. Like, how can anyone study medicine? How can anyone look at the human body and not say, there is an amazing, awesome God? All of it points to that. This is the point that Paul is making here. Creation cries out, there is a God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. There is no one on this earth who can claim that, there is no, that they don't know that there is a God. When someone makes that claim that they're not sure if there's a God, the Bible says that they are self-deceived, as I've already said. These, versifi- these verses testify to the fact that no one will be able to stand before God on judgment day and say, I didn't know that there was a God. No one will be able to say that. Ignorance will not be bliss. Boa gives this illustration about the way that God has revealed himself. He says, in the most elementary of human terms, this is not a case of a father who chastens his teenager for something he never even told him to do. Rather, this is the case of the teenager leaving school and all the way home seeing billboards, street signs, flashing marquees, signs on buses, bumper stickers, airplanes, pulling message banners. Billy, don't forget to set out the garbage for the trash truck. Then when he gets home, there are phone messages, email messages, and television commercials reminding him of the same thing. This is how plainly God has made knowledge of himself available to the human race. There is nowhere that you can look out in creation and not know that there is a God. However, sinful man does not acknowledge him as God. To do so would require that man submit to God's ways and worship him. 
when you consider all that we have learned in this last century about creation, you would think that churches would be packed today, right? But that's not the case. Why? We're told in verses 21 to 23, here we see the subversion, subversion of his glory. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Even though all this evidence points there to the fact that there is a God, people refuse to worship him or give thanks to him. I mean, on this Thanksgiving weekend, just consider all that we have to give thanks for. Every good gift comes from God. Every human being on this earth has his existence today because God created them. The oxygen that we breathe, it's from him. The food that we eat, it's from him. You just think about the food. Where did they come from, okay? If you're, you're plants, right? Well, the seed came from him. The soil came from him. The rain came from him. The sun came from him. Every single thing is from him. What do we have that he has not given us? We should continually be giving thanks to him over and over again. And yet billions and billions on this Sunday morning do not. They refuse to recognize him as creator, and instead they have become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. The, thought, the way that this could also be translated, they became worthless in their reasoning. Instead of observing the world around us and becoming worshipers of God, their reasoning has become worthless. They come instead to worthless conclusions. Their hearts should have wisely bowed down before God. Instead, they've become darkened. They're without understanding. Cranfield says this, all their thinking suffers from the fatal flaw, the basic disconnection for reality involved in their failure to recognize and glorify the true God. When you do not recognize God as creator, and you turn from that, your thinking is gone. Your, 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 your being plugged into reality is gone. When you think about the, the people around you, and you're like, well, how could they think that? I, I don't understand. It's because they have suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness, and as a result, their minds are not the way they ought to be. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. Here's the irony of it all. Right? Oh, you're so foolish to believe in God. You're, you're, you're such a fool to, to, to hold on to this old ancient book. Be like us. Be wise like us. Maybe that... I don't know if, I, don't know if it, I guess every, every generation has that, but it seems like it's really on display today, does it not? But the Bible says they are the fools. They have rejected the reality of a creator 
And instead, it says here in verse 23, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Every single person on this earth is created a worshiper. Everyone is worshiping today. The question is, who or what are they worshiping? In this list, we see that they, they take the glory that should be given to God, the honor that should be given to the immortal one, the immortal God that we serve. Instead, they, they give honor and glory to images resembling mortal man. They worship birds or animals or creeping things. Let's consider the, the foolishness, the worthlessness of this. Turn with me to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. You'll see many similarities in what Isaiah wrote to what Paul has written here. Isaiah 44, verses 9 to 20. God has just said, besides me, there is no God. Then in verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. They witness neither they, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And then he, 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 he brings out the foolishness of all this. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. In other words, there's a lot of effort going into making these idols. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it is burned in the fire. I also break bread on its coals. I roasted meat and eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Like, isn't it crazy? When you read this, isn't it crazy to think, okay, we got a tree. Let's cut down half of it. 
We're going to use that for some fire. The other, I'm going to do a little carving, and then I'm going to bow down to that carving, and I'm going to ask that hunk of wood to deliver me, to help me on a daily basis. Isn't that insanity? But they what? They have a deluded heart, as it says here in Isaiah. God has given them over to their foolishness. I don't know if you have got to see this kind of thing right on display where, there, where you literally have carved images that people are bowing down to. I remember being in Nepal and seeing that where there's like Hinduism everywhere, Buddhism. It is the most depressing thing to see. People getting up early, early in the morning to go and ring the bell to wake up their gods and then bow down to them. So many people chained to their slavery of idolatry, worshiping that which cannot help them in any way. Of course, in North America, we don't necessarily have little idols, big idols that are carved, but we have idols. Moose says this, few of us have a stone statue in our house that we worship, but we are far from escaping the sin of idolatry. At root, idolatry is giving something the priority that God alone deserves to have. We can idolize another human being by making a spouse more important to us than God. We can idolize money by making its accumulation more important than God. We can idolize pleasure by spending more time and energy on sex or golf or mountain biking than we do on God in His service. Are there idols in your life this morning? Things that you feel like, I just have to have. I have to have it. And God, if you don't give it to me, I don't know what I'll do. Are there things in your life where you're placing God here and these things here? Could be health, could be money, could be pleasure, as he said. We need to continually be asking God, God, are there things in my life that I need to repent of? God, am I, am I giving you half-hearted worship because my heart is partly over here in these things? Or are you receiving the worship that you're due as the awesome creator of this world? One other way that we can be tempted to fall into idolatry is by taking portions of this book and believing it and then rejecting the other parts. It's to make a God of our own making. Well, my God, let me see. I'm just going to have a little bit of a list here. My God, he's going to be loving. He's going to be gracious. He's going to be merciful. Um, okay. Oh, blessing. He's going to give me lots of blessing. Okay. Yeah, no, no wrath. No cursing. No, no no, no, no bringing judgment. Like, that's not my God. I have a different God. Well, you just created an idol. It's no different than the person bowing down to a piece of wood. Same thing. 
There's only one true God, and he must be worshipped for who he really is. And so we must guard against idolatry. So we're going to see next week, as S. Lewis Johnson says, perversion in life stems from perversion in faith. If we're not worshiping who we ought to worship, the immorality follows right behind it, as we're going to see next week. But I want to conclude this morning by remembering where God's wrath was most fully seen. And that was at Golgotha. MacArthur says this, the most graphic revelation of God's holy wrath and hatred against sin was when he poured out divine judgment on his son on the cross. God's wrath and God's love beautifully, wondrously displayed on the cross. God's love for you and I in his wrath against sin. MacArthur talking about God's wrath He says, although it was temporary, the agony of Christ experienced in absorbing the Father's wrath was the full equivalent of hell. This is the suffering that Jesus anticipated in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, let this cup pass from me. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that there's a cup of wrath, this pouring out of wrath. This was the cup he was talking about. Every ounce of wrath that God would have exercised on the sinner in the eternal torments of hell was poured out fully on our substitute in those three terrible hours on Calvary. Because of this, there is no longer any wrath left for Christ's people. God is propitious toward them, for their sin has been paid for. This is the good news of the gospel. I mean, consider the wrath that Jesus took on your behalf. That if you were to pay on your own, would take all of eternity to pay for. And he did not just do that for you, he did it for me. And for anyone who would place their trust in him. I fully understand God's wrath. What I sometimes have a tough time understanding is God's love. Why would he die for a group of people who shook their fists at him? For a group of people who could see that he was clearly God, but then suppressed that truth through any means possible. Why would he do that? I don't know. (laughs) But I'm thankful that he did. I'm so thankful that he did. And this is the good news of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for our, sake, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, help us to be the worshipers we ought to be, to recognize how great and awesome he is. Lord, help us to see the the despondency of the lost. To see that they're going around like this, but they need someone to come along and to say, please, let let me help you. Let me help you. There is a God. 
and you deserve his wrath. But can I tell you that in his love, he sent his son to take your wrath upon himself, or sorry, your punishment upon himself? God, help us to see the need to go. That's my prayer for all of us this morning, that we would be in awe of our own personal salvation and that we would be excited about going and telling people about the good news, that though they are lost, they may be saved. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, this picture that is painted today is in many ways hopeless. When we consider what all of us have done, that, Lord, our natural inclination is to suppress your truth, to turn away from you and worship that which ought not to be worshiped, to give glory to that which should not be given glory. God, forgive us. Lord, even those of us who have come to a knowledge of you, God, and through saving faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, we know that our, we still have that propensity to worship things that ought not to be worshiped. God, forgive us. God, help us. Lord, we want to be true worshipers this morning. God, we want to give you the glory and honor that you, you're due. Lord, help us to proclaim the glorious good news that though the wrath of God abide on all sinful man, that through Jesus Christ we might be saved. Lord, thank you for saving us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.